Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We're so glad you're here. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. For 2023, we're embarking on the Year of Our Lord, a user's guide to and through the Scriptures. So grab your Bible and join us as we journey through the Bible. Welcome to session three in our journey through the Bible, uh, the year of our Lord, where we're studying the initial sin and the initial show of God's grace over sin. But before we get too far into our study, let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, it is again that we come before you to give you thanks and praise for being a God who saw beyond our faults, beyond our sin, beyond our rebellion, beyond our self selfishness, and loved us so much that you gave us the gift of your grace as exemplified through your Son, the love which caused him to sacrifice himself for our sake, that we may have a personal relationship with you as we commit ourselves and this hour into your hands. Please use what we do to further your kingdom, to build up your sons and daughters and to help spread the word, to know you and to make you known. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we'll be concentrating mostly on Genesis chapter 3 for this session. Uh, we won't be doing this much of a blow-by-blow. Blow. From this point forward, we're going to start to be uh, examining things in a more broader sense as we continue through moving through the Bible in a year's time. But there are certain themes that we have to get rock solid, certain foundations on which we absolutely have to commit ourselves. And, and the first is an understanding that God is our creator that God is the sovereign Lord of this universe to whom we are ultimately accountable. The other is to know our place before him, to know how we are accountable for him. And to do that, we need to get a couple of definitions down. The first one, the, the word normally that you see in your Bibles that talks about the, the bad part of human nature is, of course, sin. Now, Anglicanized, it means to miss the mark. Well, which mark are we talking about? We're talking about righteousness, godliness, being able to live up to his expectations. Because remember, in Scripture, we are told that his expectation is to be holy just as he is holy. In fact, the word Christian, if you'll remember, means Christ-like, which means that everything we do, the person that we are through our conduct, conversation, and character, all of that leads back to being a reflection of Christ and his love both internally and externally. When we talk about death, as we will in just a moment, as we go through this particular scripture, uh, there are three modes of death that you need to be aware of as we continue throughout the rest of the Bible. You will hear death referred to, of course, as the separation of the soul from the body. When the body stops functioning, and is no longer alive. We are physically dead. But there is also, as we are taught through the writings of Paul, a spiritual death that we encounter before we meet Christ. As we are made in the image of God, we as human beings are a trinity. We have a body which is the physical part of us. 
the part that interacts with the world around us, that communicates with our, our fellows, and that enables us to be uh, to see, hear, feel, touch, taste, and so forth. Basically, the way that we receive information, the way that we interact with our environment, the way that we communicate and have relationships with other human beings is based on the body, but it is temporary. There is, of course, the soul, which is the immortal part of us, exemplified by the mind, our emotions, our memories, our personality, the, uh, the unintelligible effort, uh, essence of who we are that will echo throughout eternity, that will exist throughout eternity, our soul. And then, of course, there is the spirit. Now, when we say spirit, we're, of course, referring to the Holy Spirit of God, who we were created to have an intimate relationship with. In fact, the Bible refers to his, uh, his relationship with us as not just a person-to-person -person type of relationship, but an indwelling presence. So you were designed to have three persons in, well, three aspects in one, just as he is three persons in one. Body, soul, spirit, the temporary, the eternal, and the divine living within us. So to be outside of Christ in our day and age is to be spiritually dead, as Paul tells us, dead in our trespasses and sins, because we simply do not have the Holy Spirit regenerate within us, regenerating within us. Uh, there's also, of course, the second death, which unfortunately I had out of order on that slide, but the death that is talked about in the book of Revelation when the final judgment comes and the soul is permanently separated from the presence of God. The second death, condemnation in hell. We need to talk a little bit about spiritual warfare as well, the spiritual enemies that we confront. The world, meaning society and its pressures, uh, the flesh, which is our lack of self-control and, and personal, uh, personal emphasis, we'll talk about that in just a second, and of course, the devil himself. The world, when we talk about the world being an enemy, we're talking about uh, the society in which we live, the culture in which we live, that tolerates, and not only tolerates, but popularizes sin, rebellion against God. Uh, social pressures which create norms, things that we think of as being normal, things that we think of as being correct because everybody else is doing it. You've heard that phrase. But things that are nevertheless against the will of God. And that's an enemy because as people within our culture, if we're exposed to it long enough, we start to not think about it. We go blind to it. Just as if you're in a, a room with a bad odor, if you're there for long enough, you, go, you turn what is called nose blind because your sense of smell becomes tolerant through exposure. So social norms against God's will. Of course, there's also unjust social structures which come about because our society functions based on man's wisdom, not God's wisdom. The fallible versus the holy. The phrase, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few come to mind. That logical progression that leads to slavery, that leads to marginalization, that in, uh, in the case of World War II, led to the extermination of minority populations. Unjust social structures. There's also the popular acceptance of idolatry. 
the world in which we live cultivates a desire to promote the self at the expense of everything else. So there are personal relationship pressures that force us or that try to corral us into focusing on sin and self, the, the, the foundational sin, which is pride, at the expense of our relationship with God. Anything that you worship, that you spend time with, that you consider yourself um, a part of at the expense of your relationship with God, anything that causes you to uh, drift away from God and your dependence on Him, your reliance upon Him, and your need to fulfill His calling in your life is idolatry. And all idolatry is built on a worship of the self. Even in the literal case of idolatry, when someone sets up a statue of something else and worships that statue, what they're worshiping is the aspects of themselves that they see fortified in that graven image. Idolatry ultimately, at its core, is pride, the worship of the self and the self-comfort in place of God. Of course, that leads to the neglect of the suffering. We do not hear the cries of the needy. We do not hear the pleas of the marginalized. Instead, what we hear is ways that we can marginalize and ways that we can subjugate. That's where human nature eventually drifts. If you want uh, prime examples, look at the totalitarian governments that even exist today in the 21st century. And the amount of Christian persecution, excuse me, and prosecution, I guess you could say, that is going on within them because Christ stands in opposition to totalitarianism. Christ stands in opposition to unjust structures. Christ tells us that we should see each other in love, not each other as objects. But that's where society inevitably leads. And of course, there's the removal of divine value from human life. Every human being is an image bearer of God, a person of eternal significance and divine worth. Society, on the other hand, turns us into merely a cog in the machine, a number instead of a person. The flesh refers to self, uh, the focus on the self at the exclusion of everything else, the part of ourselves that doesn't need outside influence to lead us to a life of sin. Selfish ambition on others' expense, for instance. Seeing others as functions or as objects instead of human beings made in the image of God. Having an inability to control your own emotions. Your reaction to somebody else is your responsibility. The word choices that you have when you deal with other people is your responsibility. And of course, the fruit of the Spirit, meaning the hallmarks of a regenerate life, is love, joy, peace, goodness, faithfulness, forbearance, patience, and self-control. The flesh does not like self-control. The flesh wants to subjugate others, to use others, and to fulfill the personal desires at the expense of others. So it's the inability to control emotions. The way that we react is something that needs to be brought under control in order to be Christian. And it's only possible through the reliance on the Holy Spirit of God. And of course, another symptom of fleshly control is a reliance on the self in ignoring God. If you think that you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, as the old saying goes, then you're self-deceiving. We need God. 
We need God for His divine guidance. We need God for His grace. We need God for His provision. We flat need God and the family of God. It is when we start relying upon ourselves that we suddenly become self-focused, self-centered, and that we sacrifice our relationship of Him because we become self-worshipping as well. And of course, uh, the other, the, the more at the forefront of our mind when we hear that the flesh is an enemy is placing physical desires before ethical behavior. Eros instead of uh, agape. And then, of course, there is the big enemy himself, the father of all lies, the murderer, the devil, who we'll talk about in just a second. We're talking spiritual warfare here, supernatural warfare, in which you are both the pawn and the prize of a war that has been waging since the beginning. The goal of the enemy is ultimately to strip God of his glory, to turn us into a pawn in proxy wars that ultimately mean that, that God's creation was imperfect, that we as the inheritors of the kingdom of God are not worth God's time, and that God never should have created us in the first place. In other words, the devil is trying to convince God that he's not righteous, that he's imperfect, and that he's not omnipotent. He's trying to strip God of all of his authority and place himself there, and he's using us, or trying to use us as a means to an end. And those who delve in, in Satan worship, even though they claim to... Uh, be atheist in, in the core of their being, they have no idea of the dangers that they're putting their own souls in. Anyway, he's known as the tempter, attempting to trip creation into open rebellion against God, which he succeeded in the chapter that we're going to study in just a second. He, uh, of course, is trying to discredit the people of God. That's how he attacks us as members of the church, regenerate Christians, trying to trip us up so that we are exposed as fallible before others so that they can point and call us hypocrites. One of the enemy's greatest weapons is a fallen Christian. Distraction from the eternal. This is another one of his greatest uh, warfare tactics is that he tries to get us to take our eyes off of God and place it squarely on the problem where it doesn't belong. To focus on the trees instead of the forest to see the small picture and worry about it so much that we become paralyzed and unable to function when the God of all providence wants us to be reliant upon Him because no matter what we face, He's already provided an answer for if we will simply rely on Him, have faith in Him, and seek comfort both in Him and in His people together. It's also the enslavement of creation, which is his ultimate goal. So, having that out of the way, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Genesis chapter 3. The most reluctant chapter in all of the Bible, the fall of humanity. Reading from verse 1. Now the serpent, incidentally, we find out in the book of Revelation when John says that old serpent... The literal translation of what he's saying is the serpent of old, and he's identifying the devil here. So we can easily link the two because John himself does as he's witnessing it in the end days. The serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that, God, that the Lord God had made. And he said to woman, did God really say, 
You can't eat from any tree in the garden. Notice this tactic of the, belie- of the deceiver. Notice this tactic of the deceiver because it is one that he still uses to unfortunate great effect today, causing doubt in the Word of God. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God said, You must not eat it or touch it, or you will surely die. The enemy turns around and does two things. Number one, he outright lies by calling God a liar. And two, he initiates the temptation of self-focus, self-centeredness, and self-worship. Notice this, verse 5. In fact, God knows, making God the enemy, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. The temptation is for you to become God yourself. Self-worship, self-focus, dismissal of God and placing yourself as your own idol. Knowing good from evil. Excuse me. Verse 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. Underline this. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Notice, because this is going to come back as we read Paul's letters, notice that Adam did not argue, did not defend himself or his wife, did not seek redemption, but instead instead, succumbed to temptation without firing a shot. He ate it. So the nature of temptation... Discredit the Word of God. Did God really say that? No, He didn't mean it because He had these ulterior motives. Promote self-worship. God knows that in the day that you eat it, you will become like God. Promote self-empowerment. You will have this thing where you now know the difference between good and evil, which will make you more powerful, which will put you on the same level playing field as God. Inspire hatred in the divine. God is the enemy. God doesn't want you to have what God himself has. God doesn't want you to excel. God doesn't want you to be powerful when nothing... God shouldn't be sovereign and you should is effectively what he's saying. Inspire hatred in the divine. Inspire a love of darkness that we're about to talk about in the next couple of verses and inspire self-reliance. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They saw their fallen condition, in other words. So they sewed fig leaves together. That's self-reliance. They tried to cover themselves. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and underline this, they hid from the Lord God. They started to love the darkness because it concealed the evil that had now invaded their hearts, as we found out as we considered the the writings of Paul. This we'll come back to later on. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? God knew where they were. This is him 
exercising relationship, trying to include the man in the conversation. And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, naked, excuse me, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, this is also human nature, the blame game we call it. The man replied, "The woman you gave to me to uh, gave me to be with gave to be with me. Excuse me. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it." So the Lord God asked the woman. Notice, even in their fallen condition, when confronted with the very presence of the immediate presence of God, they remember at that point who's really in charge. So the Lord God asked the woman, "What is this that you have done?" And the woman said, "The servant." The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. The the animal inhabited by the enemy, to go that far, became a symbol of the work of the enemy. You are cursed more than any livestock and any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, more literally between her seed and your seed. Now, in a lot of modern translations, the meaning behind that word has been softened uh, because of, well, to make it, I guess, more polite. But this is a foreshadowing of the gospel yet to come. Why is that? Because a woman doesn't technically, biologically, have a seed. I won't get into the details of that. But in order for the seed of a woman to confront the seed of the enemy, a woman would have to give, a virgin would have to conceive, a virgin would have to give birth. Do you see where this is leading? He will strike your head. You will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains and you will bear children with painful effort. I want you to notice this line because it often gets misinterpreted. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. This is not concerning physical desire. Desire has more than one meaning. We discover that in the connotation of the verse. The verse doesn't talk about sexual desire. It talks about Power struggles. It talks about power struggles. The desire that we're talking about here is a desire between the husband and the wife, between the two partners, to want to dominate each other. And he said to the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree which I commanded of you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by the means of painful labor all of the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and to dust you will, excuse me, and you will return to dust. The version that I memorized and the version that I'm reading from are in conflict. My apologies for getting tongue-tied. But there are a couple of things in here that you need to know. First of all, work is prescribed. 
in Holy Scripture. Your provision will come to you through engaging in labor. God will provide the opportunities. All life comes from life. All provision comes from God. But you have to have now an engaged part. No longer will you just merely administrate the earth. No longer can you just simply subdue it, but you have to work for every inch. You have to work for every meal. And remember always, as you're doing this, that you were taken from dust, and what? To dust you shall return. The, the, the enemy that Satan is called the murderer. Jesus himself calls him out on this. He might not have dug a, a knife into their hearts, but he's the reason they're dead. Today, they are no longer among the living because of the sin that he tempted them into. And he is the reason why we still bear the scars of physical death. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. But I want you to notice this scripture. Because it's out of place. What did the man name his wife? Now, we, we skim over this. We don't stop to think about this, but I want you to pause and consider for just a second. They have both been told that they have been cursed. They have both been told the ramifications of the sin nature that not only are they going to have to suffer, but all that would come after them would suffer. And yet something that God said, something that God said caused the man to look at his wife whom he had not yet named. Remember, he'd named everything on the planet up until this point except his wife. Genesis chapter 3 and, and most of Genesis chapter 2 are a more in-depth telling of the creation story from the human's point of view. But something God said caused him to look at the woman after he was condemned to death, after he was condemned to work, after she was condemned to pain and suffering, he looks at her in the naming conventions that are still present today in the Middle East. When a child is named or when any, anyone is named, they're usually named as a memorial of the events going on at the time of their birth. Adam hasn't named her yet. But now, something that God has said has caused him to look over at his wife and name her literally Eve, life, the mother of all living. What did God say? So many other things that Adam could have named her that talked about um, Sin, condemnation, death. So many things that he could have dwelt on, but he looks at the woman that God had given him. And instead of laying down a harsh name to, to memorialize the fall, he looks at her and names her life. Remember that her seed or the seed of a woman would be the redemption 
The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, Since man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. I underline that because this, uh, we will actually see this scene again. When Moses talks about the construction of the tabernacle, this very scene, the cherubim with swords of flame, is woven into the temple curtain or the tabernacle curtain at the time that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. The image of the guardian angel separating man from the immediate presence of God. I want you to note this for when we come to it later on. One other thing that I want you to to start cluing in on regarding God's grace. Fig leaves were not good enough. Paul tells us later on, and when you consider Cain and Abel, you'll need to know this too. Paul tells us later on that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, there is no remission of sin. There's an old English adage that says you can't get blood from a turnip. It's because vegetable sacrifices were not what saved you from sin. Sacrifices happen because the wages of sin is death. Therefore, something has to die in your stead in order to pay for the sin. And since life is considered to be in the blood, it has to be a blood sacrifice. So when God, God actually initiates this procedure by offering an immediate sacrifice to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. And we will see that later on at the rejection of the sacrifice of Cain. Because Cain was trying to give of his own work. Cain was trying to give of what he loved, but not what the law of God required. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And this is exemplified here as God himself has to put down innocent animals to cover the nakedness, to cover the shame, to cover the sin, symbolically, of of Adam and Eve. I want us to consider now the cyclical nature of human sin because we're about to see this happen before the flood as things get worse and worse and worse. This we'll come back to in the book of Exodus. We'll come back to this in the book of the Judges and on through the Kings and so forth. This particular pattern confronts us over and over again. We begin actually at the upper right-hand corner where we're talking about having peace with God. And as human nature starts to devolve, as we have a sense of peace with God, we grow comfortable. God begins to provide for us. God blesses us because we are committed in a personal relationship with Him. We grow. But things start to break down as we see that happens in Israel, as we see happens with the people before the flood. We grow in self-reliance. All these blessings were because I did it. I don't know about this God person. I'm the person that sowed. I'm the person that reaped. I'm the person that did all the work. This was all me. And self-reliance leads to self-worship, which leads to idolatry. 
idolatry, focusing on the self or an image of what we like about ourselves, what we want out of ourselves, leads inevitably to injustice and depravity. They were given over to a reprobate mind. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1. And in so doing, especially when we're talking about the people of God, God withdraws his hand of protection from them. And enemies invade. A remnant is eventually rescued, called out. Those that remain faithful, those remain protected, even in the darkest of times. But still a judgment followed by a period of desolation happens until the people who are in that judgment cry out to God in repentance. This is especially true when we consider the books of the judges. God God blesses Israel. Israel grows proud. Israel grows depraved. God withdraws his hand of protection. The people undergo a time of desolation. He keeps his hand, though, on a few that are still faithful. Or he calls someone who has the potential to be faithful out. There is a time of national repentance. And then that leads to a time of revival and rededication where the people begin to be blessed again as they cry out to God in praise and thanksgiving and adoration, which again leads to a time of peace. The problem is every time we go through around this circle, it gets worse and worse and worse. Every judge that you come across in that book, the situation gets more and more depraved as more and more people forget the God that they started to serve. Same thing happens with the books of the kings. Every time the, the circle goes around, the situation in Israel goes, gets worse and worse and worse as the people grow farther and farther away from God. But yet God gives us hope. And one of the strange places that we find a message of that hope is actually in Noah's genealogy or the line of Seth. This is a strange pattern that I was brought, uh, that was brought to my attention by one of my Bible teachers many years ago in my undergrad. The word Adam, Adam, simply means man. His son, who was not cursed, from which we get Noah, was named Seth. Seth means, literally is fixed, or is appointed, or to be placed, to put. Enosh, child of Seth, his name literally means illness, frailty, or mortality. Now remember that every time someone is named in this culture, they are named for something that happens at the time of their birth. Uh, Case in point, when Benjamin, later on in the book of Genesis, we're going to see that Rachel gives birth Uh, to Benjamin, but she names him because she is dying in the process of childbirth. She actually names him Ben-Onai, which means the son of my pain, literally. And when she finally passes away in grief, but in bittersweet celebration because there is a new son born to him, Israel comes over to the child and renames him Benjamin in memory of his mother, which means the son of my right hand. 
effectively the son of my beloved one. So something apparently happened to Enosh's mother to cause her to give him a really bad name that would probably get him beaten up on the playground. It, it, because of its root system, it can mean illness, frailty, or we believe mortality. Kenan, again, bad names, means sorrow. But then things start to get a little bit better. Mahalalel, remember that the L, E-L of L, means Lord. So Mahalalel actually means the blessed Lord. Then we get to Jared, whose name means he shall descend. It's similar to Jordan, which is a verb form meaning descending one, as the Jordan trickles down from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. But he shall descend or he shall come down. Enoch means teaching or commencement. Methuselah, if you'll remember in his story, he is the oldest on record the oldest person on record to live. The reason is because his father Enoch, we infer through Jewish tradition, had a vision about him or had a revelation about him that at the conclusion of his life, a tragedy would unfold. That much we know, even though this is, this is more tradition than Scripture, so I'll leave it for what it's worth. But here's the thing. The word Methuselah actually translates to his death shall bring. Lamech, his child, means the despairing. And Noah means, it can be used in two different ways, to mean to be comforted or to mean rest. By now, hopefully, you're starting to see the pattern because the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. So let's take a look at reading into these names. And I'll leave it up to you to decide how much stock you put into it, but I find it fascinating that when we look at these names in this genealogy, we come up with these ideas. First of all, man is appointed, if we use all of the available definitions, illness, frailty, mortality, and what? Sorrow. As we continue, the blessed Lord, Mahalalel, shall descend teaching. Inferred his, his death shall bring the despairing comfort, or to use the other definition, and rest. Let me read that again. Man is appointed illness, frailty, mortality, and sorrow. The blessed Lord shall descend teaching, and his death shall bring the despairing comfort and rest. I find that more than coincidental. And I hope you start to see the interconnectedness of the scriptures. For next session, remember to meet with your groups Share the insights that you've had in your journal, highlights from them, um, from your reading as it's been prescribed in your particular group. Share your personal thoughts as we continue on, on the subject of grace and how the grace of God is beginning to appear in Scripture. 
because we don't normally think of the Old Testament as containing grace. But I hope that you've seen by the activity of God just in these three plus chapters of Genesis, grace is still present. The God of the Old Testament is in fact the God of the New. How interconnected is the Bible? Those of you that went through my Revelation study should probably already have a good idea of how interconnected the Scriptures really are. But I want you to kind of solidify that and talk about that over with your group. And also, this is a personal question that I want you to discuss in your groups as well. And I want you to think about it. How, authority, how much authority do you place on the Word of God? Now we've talked about the enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. I want you to really meditate on this as you have your quiet times, your 30 minutes alone with Scripture and in prayer to God. How many times when you're confronted with the world, the flesh, and the devil, do you rely on Scripture and your relationship with God and your belonging to the people of God? How many times do you use those tools to get you out of those situations? Or how many times... Do you rely on the world more than the wisdom of Scripture? How many times do you rely more on your own self, your flesh, your senses, than you do your faith in God? How many times have you been confronted with temptation, with, with an altogether too tempting situation in your own mind's eye because we know it's different? We know that God always provides a means of escape. But how often does something seem so tempting that you rationalize it in your own mind at the expense of what you know to be true in the Word of God. How much authority do you give the Bible in your life? This is a question that I really want you to pray about and to ponder because it ultimately makes the difference between a maturing Christian and a Christian that is stalled in their development and their discipleship. I pray that this evening's study is a blessing to you. And I pray that you take that you take the challenge seriously, but that you also take comfort for the fact that the same God who judges sin is the same God that freely offers grace to all who believe. And that as you read the Bible from cover to cover, you see His grace on every page. And all God's people said, Amen. Heavenly Father, as we conclude this study, I ask that you would always keep us aware of your presence in our lives, that no matter where we go, Lord, there you are in our midst. There you are next to us. There you are watching us, hearing us, there you are to comfort us, and also there you are to correct us. And I pray that we would heed your word, that we would hear the call of your spirit, and that we would continue to walk day in and day out in a constant awareness of the calling that you've placed on our hearts. Use this time to encourage us, to build us up, to strengthen us, and to mature us, to conform us closer and closer into the image of your Son, so that when we are confronted with the enemies and when we are confronted uh, by those that look upon us and are curious about what makes us different, Lord, may we truly be different and put that, uh, that difference that you make in our lives on display 
so that others may come to you before it is everlastingly too late. For it is in the matchless name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person. To contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.